Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. The episode you're about to listen to is a short one-off uh, solo episode, or well, short by my standards, um, just with basic some reactions and analysis of the recent American midterms. I waited till this point to put this one out, although I was getting requests and requests on social media to do something like this, and it's something I'm more than happy to opine on, just until we kind of basically knew what the results were. I actually recorded a whole other one, but by the time I came to edit it, it was hopelessly out of date already. Um, And this is just some of my top-line takeaways on what I think happened and why, and what it means. As I say in the episode, This isn't the real sort of in-depth analysis, this is this side, this is that side. This is just sort of where I'm at with these things. I also limited this episode to just the midterms. I haven't touched on the Trump announcement or speculated about a future Republican presidential primary for 2024. One thing at a time, and we've got two years on that one, so I'm sure I'll get back to it. Apart from that, let's just get straight in. I think this is pretty self-explanatory and um, self-contained. And yeah, apparently me moving back to the UK does not mean I've lost my interest in American politics. So yeah, let's get to it. As always, I'll make this just really quick. If you like the show, please do consider sponsoring on Patreon. I'm very grateful for the support I do get. And if you've consumed, you know, more than a few of these, or if you're a long-time listener, um, consider help support, consider helping supporting the show. Um, that would mean a lot, and it makes the show possible. Thank you for the people who do that, and if you're not able to support uh, sharing it on your own social media or doing any sort of recommendation is also really, really awesome. So please do that, or thank you for doing it. All right, this is Midterm Reactions with just me. Let's get going. Okay, so, the midterms. That was a thing that happened, and that we went through, and I think finally the dust is beginning to settle on a little bit. I'm recording this on Monday 21st of November, and although there's a few races that are still outstanding, and we're yet to sort of start to feel the consequences of this, I think we have an overall picture of what went down. I actually recorded an episode sort of about a week ago in the immediate aftermath of the midterms, and it was just a complete mess because I was sort of saying stuff like, well, if the Democrats do indeed retain the Senate, then this, but if they don't, then that. And it was just kind of all over the place. And it's, it's not 
really the type of analysis that I'm set up to do or best place to do, and there's other people doing it much better of like really breaking down the numbers and going into like, well, you know, the, the votes outstanding in Wasau County, we can speculate this, that, and the other. Um, this is going to be an episode about political narratives, both descriptive and normative. You know, how people are framing this, how people are framing what it means, and sort of how we morally, I guess, ought to respond to it. And I'm going to sort of go through a bunch of them quite quickly, um, just to sort of give my overall reacts and impressions. For a lot of these, you know, any one of them, you could probably pull apart and do a whole episode on. But in a sense, there's, you know, there will be more to say on almost everything I say, but there's always more to say. And sometimes it's useful to try and just pull everything together and take stock of where you're at. And, you know, with that said, I think a useful place to begin here for me might be pundit accountability, so to speak. I comment on US politics a lot. Um, I touched on the midterms a little bit in my audience questions episode. That was more sort of like a general overview. But I've sort of been commenting quite a bit on it on Twitter. I sort of use that as like a blogging site, essentially. Um, and I think, you know, once the election happens, it's good to sort of say, okay, what did you get right and get wrong? Um, for one thing, it kind of just exasperates me when pundits say things that turn out to be wholly erroneous and then never really acknowledge that they did that. Um, for another, it's just sort of like a good way of learning and adjusting your beliefs and allowing new evidence to penetrate. Um, in this case, I'm reasonably sort of happy with, with my punditry. I'm, happy with the claims I made, and I'm also sort of happy that I landed in a place of, I don't know, I don't know, and I, I never really did a firm prediction of, like, I think Democrats will definitely retain the Senate, or Republicans will pick up the House. And I think I'm comfortable with the reasons I gave for saying I don't know, because unlike other elections, um, the 2020 presidential cycle, and even the 2018 midterms, actually, to an extent, all of the indicators were sort of lining up one way. Whereas they weren't here, our indicators were kind of all over the place. Not only that, but there was a lot about this election that was unprecedented. I think the effect of the Dobbs decision, the repeal of Roe v. Wade, was kind of... We, we don't have any real historical benchmarks, or none that it really remotely relevant to, like, how that would impact a midterm. We're coming off the back of a violent attempt to disrupt the transition of power, and a lot of candidates running essentially on the platform of overturning election results. That's pretty unprecedented. And so... I think it's fine to say that you don't know. More than that, here's sort of where I was at, and like I say, I'm sort of happy with this. I sort of, to summarise my commentary, I think thought two things. There's two sets of big forces here, 
And to some degree, I think they're cancelling each other out, but I don't quite know what will overwhelm what. On the one hand, you have what's called thermostatic public opinion, which is simply to say, in this sort of election, it tends to be a reaction against the party in power. On the other side, you have the Dobbs decision and Republican poor candidates and election deniers might seem to be giving Democrats more of a chance than they ordinarily would have. So you've got one force or set of forces that seems to be pushing towards Republicans, one force or set of forces that tends to be pushing towards Democrats. And I think my overall analysis is both of these are real. I think the thermostatic public opinion thing is clearly real. I also think there has been a Dobbs effect, and I do think there has been some impact from Republicans selecting poor candidates in competitive seats. And I think where I landed was, I'm not quite sure um, which one of those will ultimately overwhelm the other. I think they're, they're both having an effect. And, yeah, not to pat myself on the back too much, because it was a very cautious um, analysis, um, particularly on the predictive front. But I think that was more or less right. And I think it was right to be cautious because, you know, a lot of these races were really close, like within a percentage point or so. I think there's a bunch of seats in the House that are going to go to runoffs. Georgia's going to go to a runoff um, in the Senate. Um, Nevada was pretty close in the Senate, and so on and so forth, right? And so, really, I think, you know, exactly, not only being able to analyse what's going on and saying, yeah, I think there is a Dobbs effect, um, it seems to be worth, I don't know, anywhere between three and six points, something like that. I think that's something, you know, as an epistemic claim, yeah, I think we could know that in advance. Or we could have, like, you could make a strong argument that we know that. Um, the, the idea that you could know it with such confidence, you could get it down to, like, a fraction of a percentage point and of countervailing forces, what overwhelms what, I'm not really sure we can know. So I actually think it was sort of correct to be a bit cautious there. Um, I didn't ever really buy into the, like, this is going to be a red wave that's going to absolutely decimate Democrats, because I did, like I said, I think the Dob there was a Dobbs effect and there was a candidate quality effect. But it would not have surprised me at all if Republicans had been a point or two ahead of where they are now, which would have equated to narrow Senate control and a more comfortable control of the House, right? That wouldn't have surprised me at all. With that said, I think what did surprise me about this election was how little I was surprised by it. There was, there was no result where I was like, whoa, would not have seen that coming. Um, I didn't try and do like a seat-by-seat -seat prediction, but I said I thought the Democrats were in reasonably good shape for an election year, for a midterm election year. Although some of the things I was sceptical about, and I specifically said I was sceptical, for instance, that we could really do anything in the Senate race in Ohio, pretty happy with that call. I conversely said I was feeling good about Arizona and Georgia, 
We'll see what happens in Georgia, but feeling pretty good about that call. But, like, you know, wouldn't have, like, if, if, there's, there's nothing in there that I was, you know, really, like, shocked by. And in many ways, it was just a lot, with a few exceptions, you know, big exceptions, like, I think, Florida, you know, we can talk about. But it was just 2020 again, wasn't it? It was like really not that much had changed. Although a lot had changed, but it had kind of all just led us back to the point where we started. So, okay. That's my like pundit analysis of, you know, self evaluation. Um, I think I was pretty cautious about this one. But probably right to be cautious. Um, and I think the things that I thought were having an impact on this election did indeed have an impact on this election. I'm sure there's like some specific thing I said, but okay. That's sort of what happened. In terms of the narratives, what are like my big takeaways? Um, I've sort of got two, and they seem at odds with each other, and they are at odds with each other. Um, but they, they can, and I think are clearly both true at the same time. The first of which is, in terms of, like, what I would like to see happen, or sort of what ought to see happen, this was a very underwhelming result. We have one political party, the Republicans, that were quite openly running on overturning democracy, and in the face of one of the most serious rolling backs of, you know, sort of liberal rights that we've really seen in our lifetimes, the Dobbs decision, all of which is overwhelmingly unpopular, and yet this party was still electorally competitive. And that's, like, pretty bad, right? Um, so we're a long way from, like, where I think we ought to be, or where I think we need to be to feel confident about the future of American democracy. That's my big takeaway number one. Conversely, my big takeaway number two is that in many ways this is a surprisingly good result for Democrats. People are like, oh, you know, it's, they really beat expectations. They did. They really beat the historic trend. They did. Um, and we always knock Democrats' election campaigns and, like, electioneering and messaging, sometimes justifiably, sometimes unjustifiably. But I think a lot of people who are sort of inclined to be sceptical of Democrats are sort of grudgingly saying, yeah, they, they ran a pretty good campaign here. Um, and I think both of those things can be true at once. Um, and let's maybe just go through a some of the narratives that are emerging. I'll just do quick takes on both of those in turn. So, let's maybe start with the bad news. Yes, Democrats beat expectations. Yes, I think overall they ran pretty good campaigns. Some exceptions, and there's some stuff that they could have done better, but overall, compared to, like, where Democrats were on midterms and state-level races and gubernatorial races, say, under Obama, light years ahead, right? And that's all good news. With that said, um, what, as Churchill 
said of Dunkirk, we should not mistake this deliverance for a victory. Right, it is still the case that tens of millions of Americans went out and voted for candidates whose view was abortion should always be criminal, even in cases of rape and incest. While it is true that the most extreme Republican candidates did seem to pay a reasonable political price for their extremism, millions of Americans still went out and voted for conspiracy theorists, for racists, for anti-Semites, for the most open authoritarians that we've seen running for major offices in quite some time. And where they lost, they often lost quite narrowly, you assign a few million votes differently, and we're in a very, very different position. And for all that there's a lot to feel good about for the Democratic Party, we have not achieved here what we really wanted to and needed to for reproductive freedom, which is to say 52 seats in the Senate and hold the House, and most gallingly, we weren't that far from it. There's at least two Senate seats I can think of that we didn't pick up and in some alternate universe could have done, and there's enough House seats that are like within a point or two that, again, you can imagine some alternate universe that Democrats carried. And I think that means Roe is dead for the conceivable future. Um. It is by no means unthinkable that Democrats might pick up the House again in 24. It, it, that hasn't happened, but just because of a bunch of complicated stuff, like that with a presidential year turnout, that might just happen. I do not see how we will hold the Senate in 24. And we may very well hold the presidency. But if we hold the Senate in 24, it'll be like a 50-50 thing again. And even that's really optimistic. Our best pickup chances are Florida and Texas. And we're defending in Ohio. Um, oh, Christ and Blank. We're defending in Ohio, West Virginia, and Montana. So yeah, that's not great. Um, so I think the rights got what they wanted here, and the abortion fight has moved to the states. In a way that clearly, I think, hasn't been electorally advantageous for the right, and I think will probably continue to be an electoral disadvantage for them, now that the battle is a real one, and uh, not an abstract one. But that you know, partisan advantage is probably of little comfort to people on the ground whose lives are impacted by this. People are going to die because of this. People probably already have. So there's that, right? Um, on the sort of future of American democracy stuff, I think we will have to see how this plays out how much of a warning Republicans took from this. On the negative side, I don't think this election result was really enough 
to force them off it. I think what we needed was perhaps what you've seen in British politics, where, like, a third of the party base just deserts you. So that happened under Jeremy Corbyn for the Labour Party in 2019. He just lost, like, a third of Labour voters. Just complete coalitional collapse. And now the converse seems to be happening to the Tory party after Liz Truss's short and disastrous premiership, in that they've just plummeted from mid-30s to, like, 20% share of the vote. They've lost, like, a huge section of their coalition. We'll see if it comes back to them. Um, we needed some. We needed feedback that strong, I think. Something to say to the Republican Party, change course or die, right? And they, we're clearly a long, long, long way away from that. With that said, they have paid a price, right? Um, I think running bad candidates who are, like, approaching election denial probably cost them control of the Senate, which has cost them, which means Democrats will get to keep on appointing justices, maybe even another Supreme Court justice, who knows. That's something Republicans care about. You know, I said in my abortion episode, I'm really not sure Mitch McConnell, in his heart of hearts, no matter what he says publicly, would really want to see Roe overturned. And now that Roe has been overturned, I think that's pretty unequivocally cost McConnell being majority leader again. Right? But I don't know if that's enough, and I think really only time will see. I think to be confident and say, yeah, this was a turning point in getting us back on the road to a more functioning democracy, we'd have had to see a bigger backlash than we did, right? Um, so I'll just, yeah, but with that said, there was some backlash, right? So that's sort of the, the bad news in many senses, in that this was, while reassuring, and while the worst did not happen, if Republicans had, say, swept it and got 54 Senate seats and a big majority in the House, that would have confirmed for them that this path they're taking is the right way to go and there will be no consequences for it. And then I think we would have entered into a... that would have got us into the death spiral, right? Um, we have avoided the worst outcome, and that is good. Let us not mistake the deliverance for a victory. Um, Roe is gone. I don't think it's coming back anytime soon. I think that fight moves to the states as conservatives have always wanted. And I think, with respect to the survival of liberal democracy in the states, we just sort of move forward now. We remain sort of at an inflection point, I think. Um, and actually, while I'm at it, I've got a few things to say about the narratives that surround this, because I've been, for as long as I've been doing this podcast, in fact, much longer, on what gets disparaging termed, and I've just adopted the term, the alarmist side, which is to say, I do really think the survival of liberal democracy in America is in danger. I think it's something we can lose, and I think pretty unequivocally now are in the process of losing. I think America, and this isn't even really controversial, is in the process of transitioning from a liberal democracy into something of a hybrid regime. Um, I think people who 
study authoritarianism in a sort of comparative sense. That's more or less the mainstream view now. Um, and one thing that's sort of been interesting is the sort of refusal of a lot of conventional political wisdom to really grapple with that fact, as well as sort of the refusal of electorates to kind of be bothered by it in, in many senses. So while I do think, and you know, we'll get back to this, the, 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 the direction the GOP has taken has had electoral consequences for them, it seems to me that there's a lot of voters who just sort of really don't want to hear about this. They don't want to think about it. It's not what they want to be voting on. And they react quite badly to, to people bringing it up. I also think it's something that sort of the reactionary centrists that dominate a lot of American punditry have really sort of failed to think clearly about in a lot of ways. So I'll give you an example. One of the narratives that sort of came up prior to the midterms said something to this effect. It said, you know, Democrats are running on democracy is at stake on, in, in the ballot box. But if you have to vote to defend democracy, you've already lost democracy. And this is just a really poor framing from Democrats' part. They, they've already sort of given up the game and, like... Okay, this, this is a really bad analysis. It's bad descriptively, um, it's bad morally, and it's bad strategically. Um, you know, if you have to vote to defend democracy, it's already lost. So it's bad descriptively because democracy is not one thing, it's many things. There's a lot of different aspects to what would make something uh, a, a, a true democracy. Um, free and fair elections are a big part of it, but so is losers' consent, so is being able to accept the rule of the other side, so is the peaceful transition of power, so is freedom of speech, so is freedom of the press, um, so is, I think, some sort of general societal commitment to at least a thin universalism, uh, an acceptance of some idea of pluralism within the society, so on and so forth. Um, there's a lot of different components to the concept of democracy, and of course there are competing conceptions of the concept of democracy, although I can leave that point to one side for now. And I think in the American case, what's clearly happened is we've lost some of those, undeniably. Um, I think we've clearly lost losers' consent. Um, like, we just... The idea that one side will say, okay, the other side won fair and square, you know. That, we just took that outside and shot it in the back of the head a, a, a while ago now, right? Um, but we haven't lost others. We still have, despite the howls of reactionaries, a pretty robust free speech regime in America. Um, our elections, I wouldn't go as far as perfectly free and fair, but... You know, they're not being stolen left, right, and centre, as is being alleged. Our commitment to pluralism is definitely supported unequally, but it is still there in many parts of America, including conservative parts. So I think what's fair to say is we've 
we've lost or are losing some parts of the concept of democracy, and we still have others. And I think what this take does is it makes that a binary. It says, well, you either have it or you don't, and if you're telling people that democracy's already been lost, then they don't have a meaningful choice at the ballot, therefore democracy's already, like, gone, and with the implication that that's a silly and alarmist and hysterical take, right? Or that it's just special pleading on the part of Democrats. No. We've lost some of it, we have some of it. It's worth trying to maintain what we still have, and to try and get back what we've lost. That's just common sense, right? It's also really morally flawed as an analysis. Um, you know, like, it's placing the blame on Democrats for describing what the GOP is doing, rather than on the GOP for doing it. Right? Surely that's just a total inversion of any sensible idea of moral responsibility. And finally, I think it's strategically flawed. The idea that by describing the problem, you're making it worse. Well, if we don't describe it, how are we going to solve it? And I understand there is a reluctance in big sections of the public and of the press to be confronted with the hard realities of where we are now. I think the public don't want to be told that the state is beginning to come apart at the seams. And I think the press don't want to be confronted with it because they, I think, just really aren't able to face up to their own culpability in that. And I think the, the reason that this, this sort of narrative appeals to a lot of people is it really absolves the press of any responsibility, and it sort of blames both sides. It's like, well, yeah, Republicans are wrong to be extremists, and Democrats are being very extreme, are they not, about pointing out Republican extremism? It seems like they both have a bit of an extremist problem. Um, so it, it, it kind of sidesteps the idea that there might be some responsibility on behalf of the mainstream media to inform the public about about what is happening. And I think that kind of, like, um, obfuscation will very likely continue if we avoid the worst outcomes in the short run. So, if it is the case, and I'm not 100% confident on putting my, you know, saying this is definitely what I think will happen, but I think it's quite plausible that Republicans do actually take some, some lessons from this, and that they really try to, you know, push to the bottom, as it were, the sort of election-denying rhetoric, certainly not put people like that up for competitive seats anymore, and to sort of try and define the party around something else, which looks like it's going to be Hunter Biden's laptop, but that's another story. I think what a lot of these people will say is, see, you know, we had an election, it was fine, your side lost the House, they picked up, the, they retained the Senate, and democracy continues as normal. You might not like every outcome, but the system hasn't collapsed. Weren't you being foolish to think that it was? And I think that's going to be really just missing how badly wrong this could have gone, right? 
um, like I say, I think if Repub- if there had been a real red wave, that we could have got to quite a dark place quite fast, and particularly if it's it's not just at the federal level, it's also at the sort of state level. A lot of the swing states that we've been worrying, will they honour the popular vote in the next presidential election? It looks like pretty across the board, um, Republicans have lost competitive gubernatorial races and secretary of state races, and the people who want to overturn election results have, by and large, been kept out of positions in which they could do that, right? Um, but again, closely, a lot of those results were kind of 51-49 or like 52-48 type things, right? Um, and I think the fact that the Democratic Party, by which I mean its politicians, its activists, and its sort of core most loyal voters, I think the fact that the Democratic Party took an existential threat seriously and absolutely did everything they could and achieved in many ways a historic victory by comparative terms, if not absolute terms, in order to to stave off those worst outcomes, should not be taken as evidence that those outcomes were never on the table. You know, see, the, the, the troops all got home from Dunkirk. Weren't you so worried? Weren't you so silly to be worried that the Nazis were a problem? They all got home safely, or mostly. But not great analysis. Um, I think with a lot of this, what you've sort of seen, and it's, it's not only centrists, actually, there's, there's people on the left who are, who are sort of in this state, is you've seen prophecy evolving in the face of failure. So, you know, I'm just sort of riffing off my New Testament episodes, but I think one of the things I tried to argue is what a lot of what you're seeing in the New Testament is a prophecy that gets contradicted by real-world events and doesn't abandon its core ideas, but just kind of evolves into a new form. The destruction of the temple confirms what Jesus said and is presaging the end of the world couple of decades later, end of the world hasn't happened. What Jesus said was right, the destruction of the temple is the beginning of the end, but there's also going to be this period called the Age of the Gentiles that'll sort of be a buffer zone between the temple and the end of the world. But the core idea's right, we just have to shift the details around. Um, and I think a lot of religious ideas and a lot of political ideas are sort of like that. You start with a core impulse that has a moral element but also just a predictive and a descriptive element um and in the face of like repeated falsifications of the predictive and descriptive elements it mutates and changes and what you end up with is something that you'd never really have designed from scratch um but but the but the, the 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 way these belief systems evolve is you never quite go back to the drawing board either, right? Um, and I think with the sort of... Um, I've been describing sort of my position as the alarmist position, I think with the, like, dare I say, complacentist, that's not a word, but you know what I mean, position, you're sort of seeing something a bit like that. Donald Trump won't win, 
And even if he does, he's not really serious about what he's saying. We need to take him seriously, but not literally. He doesn't actually mean this. He sort of wins. Oh, well, you know, he's just lashing around in office. He's an ineffective, you know, president. He's not going to get much done. What is the harm? You know, yes, he's saying things about the election, but like, you know, he'll accept the result when it comes. Okay, he hasn't accepted the result, but it's, it, you, it's ridiculous to think there'll be a coup. So on and so forth, right? I think the latest iteration has, like I say, twisted itself into this really weird place where it's like the core impulse is still there, that the main problem is hysteria from people like me who are sort of exaggerating or fabricating even the dangers that the American political system is in, um, sort of expressed this idea of, well, if you're, if you're the one saying that democracy is in danger and you have to vote on that basis, you're actually the one who's taking democracy away. Now, you'd never get to that position from scratch, right? If you were to design a political worldview, you'd never just come up with that. In the same way as I don't think you'd have, like, the temple and then the age of the Gentiles. No one would start with that. It's what you get as prophecy sort of has to twist itself through the contradictions of the world. I think that's, like, sort of um, what's um, what's um, happening here. And like I say, it isn't just the centrist pundits. Um, I could talk in this vein about the impulse on sort of the socialisty left to say both parties are the same, um, which had historically was never particularly true, but historically was more true than it is now. And the parties are just coming apart, right? They're further apart now than any two main parties or coalitional blocks in any comparable system, right? Um, and you've sort of seen repeated iterations of, like, wanting to preserve that instinct that the system is fundamentally rotten to its core and that all the actors within the system on both sides are implicated within it. Um, you've wanted to see a preserving of that instinct while sort of grappling with its real-world falsification, and all various different new narratives have sort of sprung up around that. And there's, there's various other, other um, sort of ideological groups in American society that you could also talk about that. Um, that would be the whole um, rest of the episode to sort of go through them all. Um, like I say, there's always more to talk about. Um, but that's, that's sort of the, the bad news, as it were. Um, and I don't, yeah, I could talk, do the rest of the episode just on the bad news, but I do also want to give time to the, to the, to the good news, and it was good news in a sense, like, certainly a sense of relief for, for a lot of these results, I think, for a lot of people. Um, so where are we at? Here's sort of where... I'm at in terms of my thinking about like where the American electorate is right now. It seems that we have a very partisan electorate. But point one, we have a very partisan electorate that 
is increasingly, but not totally, inelastic to events and inputs. So in other words, a lot of voters, probably most voters, are pretty locked in in terms of their party support right now, but there are still swing voters, there are still people who move between the parties, um, there are still people who, on one side or the other, who are amenable to persuasion, um, but the effect size is smaller than you might think, or smaller, say, than comparison to, let's just do the UK case again, where a big sort of system shock, like Brexit or the trust budget or something, can shake loose a third of the, the party's support. We're seeing a, a much smaller effect, but not a meaningless one, because of point two, which is we have a very, very closely divided electorate. And I think that that second point often gets missed. I think so much analysis and commentary, of which I've done a whole load as well, on American politics focuses on the partisan part. And, you know, there's all sorts of descriptive and normative analysis that you can do there. And misses the closely divided part. It's sort of assumed, but there's actually no particular reason why those two things necessarily would run together. You can imagine very baked-in partisan preferences, but where 70% of the electorate is really baked into Party A, and 30% is really baked into Party B, and that that is the state of play, actually, for many democracies around the world. And I think it's actually also the state of play, if you go back far enough, for reasonably big chunks of American history, right? So, yes, it's partisan, and yes, the preferences, the, the sort of movement that you see between those blocks is reasonably inelastic, which is to say, big sort of changes only have seemingly quite small effects in terms of voters moving. But that still matters because of point two, that it's closely divided, right? In that if we did have, like, a partisan but 70-30 electorate, nothing would matter anymore because the number of votes that can change based on, you know, policies or things happening or persuasion or campaigns isn't big enough that you could swing 20% of the electorate over, at least not in a single cycle, right? So point two kind of really changes the context in which point one is, is happening. And for the rest of this episode, let me just maybe make a few quick points about both of those in turn. So, okay, point number one. Um, strongly polarised electorate with strongly but by no means totally inelastic voter preferences. Um, you know, I won't... I think there's, there's deep historical roots to the state of polarisation that we're in. Um, you know, it, it was a while ago and in a different political climate, but I think the analysis of, of, sort of how we reached that of polarisation I did in my Brexit Congress culture solo episode, I think largely holds up in terms of um, 
essentially how demographic identity has aligned with partisan identity, and that identity preferences, you know, if you're a, a white evangelical, that, that's now really completely aligned with being a Republican, in a way that historically it wasn't, right? Um, I think that's, and, and, you know, preferences on really fundamental issues, like, say, civil rights, used to be split between the parties and are now aligned to the parties. Um, that's a very, very brief overview of, like, the historic roots um, that I've done so much, and I think that's a big part of it. Um, I was just thinking in doing this episode, actually, about, you know, I've lived in both the UK and the US, and I said, you know, it does seem like the British electorate's preferences, it's not like they're swinging all over the place, but when it comes to really big stuff, they do seem to be significantly more elastic than the American electorate's preferences right now. And you could look at other European countries that, that have seen you know, moderate political sorts of realignments. Um, you know, you think of France, where the, in many ways the traditional parties have simply stopped existing um, <laughs> to a certain degree, um, as, as sort of people being, or at least more than America, willing to sort of shift on their partisan preferences. Um, so in thinking about, like, okay, well, sort of what's the difference, I think the, the big story is that historical story, which I won't fully reiterate here. I also just think, like, American partisans, sort of, let's just propa- use the word propagandists as a descriptive rather than a pejorative, but American propagandists have really done the work of, like, locking in partisan preferences much more thoroughly than I think party propagandists have in the UK. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, that, that, that sort of, you know, doesn't exist in the UK. Certainly, you know, we've had a very strong right-wing tabloid press in the UK that for at least as since I was quite young has been drilling into the electorate's head again and again and again, you know, immigrants are the problem, they're coming here, they're taking up jobs, they're mooching off the welfare system and so on. And that's had consequences, not least Brexit was mostly, or at least strongly motivated by that, right? Um, but let, let me give you just one data point from the American case. Um, think about the figure of Rush Limbaugh. Um, he's an American sort of talk radio host. He's, he's one of the people who really pioneered right-wing talk radio. Um, one thing that, you know, I think if you're British and you follow American politics, you might miss about um, Rush Limbaugh's real significant historic importance. Um, is they know he's a right-wing figure, they know he was popular, they know um, all sorts of quotes where he might have said something wrong or just stupid, right? Um, Rush Limbaugh used to be on for three or four hours a day, every day, on the radio. And I follow, you know, a few conservatives who aren't, like, big, prominent political, you know, commentators or whatever, but just sort of ordinary conservative voters to just sort of continually take the temperature, right? And one of the things they, they share as a fond memory is when I was a kid, my dad 
always had Rush on. Like, if he was driving anywhere, he was listening to that. If he was doing work in the garage, he was listening to that. If he was just sort of milling around the house, he'd turn it on. So you have someone whose entire project, in many ways, is political partisanship. Um, Rush is certainly very much all about... He's, he's, in many ways, the ancestor, right, of the sort of anti-woke hysteria about, um, you know, trans people or something like that today, right? Um, he, or the ancestor of, like, a lot of the fears about multiculturalism or so on, and really going again and again and again, specifically against the Democrats, just think about that for a second. Hours every day just sort of absorbing that partisan conditioning for millions and millions and millions of people. And the people who sort of grew up with that call themselves Limbaugh babies. In other words, we were brought up with this man. He's part of our childhood. That's as, as sort of deep and pernicious as the Murdoch press's influences in the UK, we don't have anything like that, I don't think. Not on that scale. Not on the number of people that, that, were, that, that were reached that deeply. Uh, and in many ways, the, the, the two sort of points I started with, yes, the Democrats did well by, like, um, sort of history and, you know, whatever. But at the same time, we were in a country where, like, 70% of the population think Roe v. Wade should have stood, and that's kind of the issue we're deciding this election on, it feels inadequate that we sort of shifted from 52-48 one way to 52-48 the other way, should the effect not have been bigger. And yes, it should have in a moral sense, but then... You know, you've got to remember, like, what does that sort of conditioning do to someone, right? If, like, your entire childhood has been for hours a day hearing about how bad and malicious Democrats are, like, you know, how much harder is it going to be for that person to, to pull the lever for that party? Right? And there are people who do. You know, there are people who were sort of quote unquote Limbaugh babies um, who have finally left the party after Trump. But what you more tend to get is people who are like maybe a bit critical of where the Republican Party is gone, but have by no means let go of this framing that the Republican Party is their home and that Democrats, you know, they might sit out an election or two, but actively crossing to the other side would be a bridge too far. And then you add on to all of that, the history and so on and so on. Um, Britain seems to be trying to do that. Our politicians increasingly are starting to sort of pick up rhetoric from the American culture wars. Um, we have, what was the channel now? GB News, which is, I think, trying to sort of be like, our Fox News, or maybe even our right-wing talk radio, and it's all just landing a little bit flat. You know, it's not, it doesn't have the reach that the, the, the American partisan communication has had. Um, also in America, as another point, religion, virtually no one goes to church in the UK. 
but a lot of, if you think about either the white evangelical church or the black church, both of which are quite big amalgams of groups, these are partisan organizations, right? We don't have anything like that in the UK, where you're having these sorts of partisan views affirmed every Sunday, right? Um, so just, you know, having lived in both countries and thought about it, like, it's not like we don't get partisan political propaganda in the UK, and it's not like it hasn't sunk in. Um, I think, unless you've, like, lived in both places, it's quite easy to miss how much, how much more total the reach of American partisan propaganda has been than relative to, 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 say, many European countries. So it's disappointing, but I guess when I really think about it, maybe not that surprising that people seem to agree with Democrats on so many issues, but are still finding it quite hard to pull the lever for them. And then, of course, there's people who actively agree with Republicans on the issues. I don't mean to sound like the entirety of America is pro-choice. They're certainly not. There's many, many people who have quite conflicted views about it, and there's many, many people who are absolutely pro-life, pro-life in all circumstances, right? Nevertheless, as deep as that conditioning is, the people who are deeply partisan are probably still a minority of America. You know, even, you know, this was a, a considered a very high turnout election in that maybe about half the electorate voted, right? Even in presidential elections, it'll get up to, what, like 60-some percent or something. So there's big chunks who are just politically disengaged, politically apathetic. And, you know, within that partisan conditioning, it's a gradation from your most hardcore partisans to people who have, you know, absorbed the conditioning a bit, but nowhere near as strongly, right? So there still are movable, and there still are swing voters, there still are movable votes. So what did make a difference in this election? The big thing, honestly, that made a difference is people who were disposed to vote Republican voted Republican, <laughs> and people who were disposed to vote Democrat voted Democrat, right? Like, like, in terms of explaining 85 to 90% of the way people voted, it's that. It's this story about partisanship that we've um, been talking about in historic terms so much on this podcast, on all other forms of, of, of commentary. And I added maybe a couple more pieces to just sort of keep in mind some of these cultural differences. Um, if you're looking at America from the outside, um, so that's, like, most of it, but because of point two, because it's a tightly divided electorate, if 3% moves, that matters, right? Um, what were the things here? And I'll maybe just quickly go, go through them, just list off a couple of quick takes for, for each. Swinginess. Thermostatic public opinion. That thing. Definitely a big countervailing force in this election. And this is sort of what Democrats had to overcome and what they really significantly failed to overcome in, you know, any election other than the presidential ones during the Obama period. Um, yeah, I think this is a huge force. I think the wrong explanation is, is 
often given to it. Um, the explanation given to it by a lot of um, punditry is that voters have a preference for divided government, and when they see one party going too far, they'll counteract that party's power by empowering a congress of the other party to check that power. Um, I, I think very, very few voters actually think in these terms. Um, I think this is sort of a preference that a particular set of columnists who represent no voting constituency on the planet have. Um, but no, most Americans, like I say, are part of one team and they want their team to win. And even if they, they don't identify with either team, as again, some people still don't, um, they're, they're not really thinking about the balance of powers and Madisonian democracy. I think this is pundit brain. I think Americans do have, they do firstly express a desire for bipartisanship, and I think that that is real in some sense, but I think what they mean by bipartisanship is a sort of fatigue with the acrimony of politics, with the unpleasantness of politics. Um, they, they're sort of in expressing a desire for kind of like politicians to be nicer to each other, in many senses, and that preference is not consistent with other preferences that Americans have. They want to see bipartisanship, but they also want to see their side win, and in many ways the sort of mad confusion you've had from Biden talking about bipartisanship and also talking about the other party being an existential threat is a little confused, yes, but in many ways, he's just mirroring back the confusion of the different sort of impulses that the coalition that has elected him has, you know? So I think there is a sort of... I think that the bipartisanship thing is a bit of a misnomer, in that people sort of like their politicians to appear to be decent people. People like their politicians to sort of have an affect which is... I guess something to the effect of, look, we can agree to disagree. You know, I don't hate you or think you're a bad person because you have different politics to me. That's, I think, more what people mean when they say bipartisanship. I don't think they mean that, you know, we, we really want one party to have veto over raising the debt ceiling because that'll force a compromise on... Um, social spending that's got a bit out of control, and, you know, maybe the, the result of that friction will be good for the country. I, that's something pundits think. I don't think that's something that the electorate thinks. I think more really what the thermostatic thing is about is two things that are so simple and easy to understand that they can get lost in a lot of sophisticated analysis. And, 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 and you know, One is just a perfectly natural and understandable desire to give the status quo a bit of a kicking. You know, in the UK, in council elections, you'd almost always expect the party that has a majority in Westminster to do badly in council elections. Why? Because nobody cares about council elections. And it's like, do you like the way things are going? Do you like the people who are in charge? Or do you want to give them a bit of a kicking? And the electorate almost always is like, I want to give them a bit of a kicking. Now, Congressional elections really do matter, but 
I just think the way the parties have communicated them, the way the press has portrayed them, I don't think the electorate until recently has really felt like they matter. And I think maybe they wouldn't quite express it in these terms, but a lot of the sort of less aligned, more swingy voters just take this as an opportunity to be like, look, we're not necessarily saying we don't want Obama to be president anymore, but he's kind of been annoying me a bit recently. Like, I, I like him, but he is a bit smug. Like, he does, does seem a bit condescending at times, and look, the, the economy still isn't great, so, like, I want to kind of kick his ass a bit. Like, tell him to, you know, get serious. Now, of course, that has the reverse effect, and it completely ties a president's hands and stops them accomplishing much of anything. But I think, I think regardless of whether it's, like, correct strategically, you know, do you like the status quo, or do you want to give it a kicking? Well, actually, I'd like to give it a kicking. I think that's just a lot of it. I think the other bit is fear. I think as we've got more partisan, um, people are afraid of their political opponents being in power. And so just as there's um, an effect on the non-aligned people in that they're just like, yeah, I want to kick the status quo, I think there's an effect on the partisan people that they will be motivated to turn out when they're not in power, because when they're not in power, they're afraid. Definitely, definitely, that was a big part of the Democratic House victory in 2018. I think liberals were really, really afraid of Trump, for quite legitimate reasons a lot of the time. Um, and the, the Democratic turnout there, compared to the Obama midterms, it almost doubled. It was insane, right? Um, now, relative to this election, I think that's part of it. I think Republicans are uncomfortable and afraid with Democrats being in control of the federal government. I think that's true. I also think, at the same time as it's true, and it was a real force here, and this was another high turnout election, Republicans weren't as afraid as I think they were under Obama. I think one of the ways Republican messaging has failed generally in the last couple of years is they've failed to make Joe Biden as unacceptable and as scary as they made Obama and Hillary. I, I, I mean, Republican... Yeah, primary voters don't like him, certainly, but this real hysterical fear that you saw about Obama just isn't there anymore for Biden, really. And people will bang on about, like, Hunter Biden and his laptop and whatever, but it just doesn't seem to have the same venom in it, the same blood, it doesn't get the blood coursing in the same way as Benghazi seemed to do or Obama and purportedly not being born in America seemed to do. And I think the answers to that, why that difference is there, you know, are so obvious that we don't really need to spend much time in them. Race, gender, I think probably a little bit about Joe Biden's affect and, like, his presentational style probably also matters. I think also Hillary specifically through her entire career, was kind of a lightning rod for criticism from the right in a way Joe Biden never was. And so 
you know, Republican voters had just been conditioned to sort of um, find her threatening or scary or unacceptable in a way that they hadn't with Biden. And probably a lot of that explains the difference between 2016 and 2020, you know? Um, So I think the Republicans, you know, both of those forces, the sort of kick the status quo and the fear effect, worked to Republicans' advantage, but I think they were both muted. I think the um, fear effect, they haven't been successful in making Joe Biden as scary to Republicans as they have other leaders of the Democratic Party. And I think on Give the Status Quo a Kicking, um, they failed there too. I mean, I think that worked to their advantage in some respects, but I think they failed there too. In a lot of the things that people didn't like about the status quo were identified with Republicans and not with Democrats. And so, like, like I say, very inelastic, but not totally inelastic. Like, things have effects. And I think the big thing that moved votes in this election, and the big reason that sort of counteracted it, and why independents and swing voters actually broke for Democrats in this midterm, which is frickin' unheard of, um, is the Dobbs decision. Um, and I think it's perfectly straightforward. It's very, very unpopular. And it's very unpopular in a way that impacts your life, right? Obviously, for, for like, most women, this is something that you just have to think about all the time, is, like, contraceptive decisions and, like, you know, and, but even for men, like, if you're a straight man who sleeps with women, surely this at least factors into your thinking somehow. You'd think, apparently for many straight men it just doesn't, but, you know, it should, right? Um, and, yeah, this, this really mattered for a lot of swing, swing voters. And I think my evidence for being that, that it was Dobbs that was the big thing here is this is when the polling changed. Um, and this is when special election results changed. There was a little bit of a time lag. It took a few weeks, I think. I did an interview almost immediately after the Dobbs decision on the Philosopher and the News podcast. And I was like, it hasn't changed polling yet, and I'm not sure why. It should have moved it at least a little. And it eventually did. And that's when Democrats began to open up polling leads that eventually sort of disintegrated towards the end. But that's when they began to open up leads. And that's when they began to outperform um, sort of partisan or fundamental baselines in special elections. And, you know, it was an issue that people said was important to them and showed up a lot on, on like, exit polling and stuff like that. So I think both sort of common sense and the sort of data we have, as imperfect and messy as it is, speaks to Dobbs being the big thing that shifted this from, like, a moderate Republican year to sort of like a 50-50 type year. Okay, so that's swinginess and abortion. What about candidates and election denial. Well, this is more of a hunch on my part. I'm inclined to view this 
as somewhat secondary to the Dobbs effect, but nonetheless real. I'm also inclined to think we've kind of run two issues together that are in principle separable, which is, number one, is the candidate someone who's denying the validity of the 2020 election or running on a platform of, like, trying to sort of do another procedural coup in 2024? And on the other, just is this a good candidate? I'm actually kind of inclined to think it's more the latter. It's, it, it just so happens that those two almost always tend to go together. Um, one thing we used to talk about a whole load when I first started paying attention to politics in the Bush era, and we kind of don't talk about it all, and I think with the inelast- it, it fits into the inelastic but not totally inelastic thing, in that it, like, it's not a huge effect, it doesn't move that many votes, but it still moves some. And in a closely divided electorate, that matters. You know, when it came to, like, thinking about Bush, we forever would have this question of, like, who do you want to get a beer with? And a lot of, perhaps too much, but a lot of the sort of analysis on the left of why Democrats were failing is, like, at the end of the day, you'd rather have a beer with Bush than John Kerry. Like, Kerry, Gore, these sorts of people, just kind of, like, nerds, right? Like, they seem a bit weird, not down-to-earth. And Bush is, like, pretty affable. Like, he seems fun. Like, you'd hang... If you weren't talking about politics, who would you rather hang out with? Probably Bush, right? That, at least, was, was the narrative. Um, and when we were talking about it, it was always something that, that we sort of were... Like, a self-critique, or a critique that was given to us by our political opponents, that the, the, the left could be doing better at. Um, and that Obama, I think, did do better, I think. Not the majority, but, you know, part of his success is, like, Obama in 08. You know, does, I think he, he has the sort of dude you'd get a beer with, you'd hang out at a bar with. Yeah, I think Obama had that, right? Um, we've kind of, in, in, in increasing partisan escalation, we've kind of forgotten that. But I think it was here, and I think one quality that, all of the election deniers had is like, I wouldn't want to hang out with this person. Like they're they're weird people, right? They're not. Yeah, they're just odd, unlikable people, and it does seem to happen that those two seem to correlate quite closely. And I wonder which which is really dominant here. I think. I don't really even blame Democrats for this. I think they've tried. I think Joe Biden, of all people, you know, captain by partisanship, has gone out and said this is an existential threat repeatedly. The media hasn't covered it and the public hasn't absorbed it. it I think to the extent that had an effect, it was at the very, very margins. And I think it's made more difficult by the fact that the, the procedures through which the mechanisms through which people are trying to subvert democracy are so freaking complicated to explain. Like, you know, there's some court cases coming up on on this, the, the, the independent state legislator theory, which would functionally end American democracy. Um, but it's a nightmare to, to try and break it down. 
Um, I'm just not sure these things have penetrated. I'm not sure people are taking them that seriously. I think some effect at the margins. However, I, I do also think it's the case that the people who are most into this stuff are conspiratorial bullies who the electorate responds badly to. I think in terms of likability, we're now in almost the inverse case of where we were in the early 2000s and certainly, you know, where we were in, like, the, the 80s or whatever, where it was the left who was seen as kind of being a bit weird and creepy and un-American and out of touch with ordinary people's lives or concerns. I think it's now that it's, it's the hardcore right who are kind of the un-American weirdos to a lot of swing voters, because I'm under no illusions that, like, you know, me personally, I'm not, yeah, I'm not going to be the person who's most likely going to score likability points with swing voters in Ohio, right? Um, and I'm under no illusions that the type of politicians I personally like are going to be the people who do that best. And, you know, swing voters in general are, they're kind of the mirror image of pundits, right? Pundits tend to be a little bit left on social issues and a little bit right on economic issues. Swing voters tend to be somewhat egalitarian economically and then maybe somewhat conservative culturally. Um, and so, yeah, I can, you know, well admit that, that maybe a lot of the reasons the left has struggled is that, like, you know, Maybe a lot of social justice language just, just is alienating and weird to, like, people who are not, like, hardcore cultural conservatives, but just kind of aren't in our space on that. And, you know, the, the way we communicate a lot of the time, or just, like, the types of people we put up might not speak to that section of the electorate. I can totally see that. But you know who the sort of guy in the diner in Ohio? Is he also into people who put out the creepiest ads in the universe, basically talking about how turned on by guns they are? Whose entire thing is a sense of grievance on behalf of Donald Trump losing? Who, like, talk endlessly and falsely about how schools are now putting out litter boxes for children who identify as cats. Like, it's always dangerous to try and, like, second-guess the biases and instincts of the centre of the electorate. But while I can see that, that, that like, you know, it's going to be a slightly weird conversation if I put the most hardcore socialist or the most hardcore social justice person in the diner next to the the, the, the the middle of the road guy in Ohio. Like, I think that guy in Ohio also looked at some of the, the people the Republican Party was putting up and just thought, what a bunch of weirdos, right? I think it's now that this, like, likability thing, for, for better word, is, is a Republican problem now, not a Democratic problem. I think that's actually more what drove the candidate effect in that, um, 
And I think Democrats, by and large, have got better with it. We, we like the candidates we put forward, with some big exceptions, but the candidates we put forward are generally like quite likable people. Like I think, you know, one of the politicians I really rate, uh, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, did an excellent job of just presenting himself as like, yeah, I'm a guy you'd like to hang out with in a bar, you know. And that was especially necessary for him because he was running against a sort of subtly or sometimes quite overtly racist campaign to make him seem like a scary person. So it was especially necessary for him to do that. Um, And I think I'll give you just one case, which is the one Senate seat which has changed hands so far, Pennsylvania. Probably, I think that likability thing was like a big part of it. Because our candidate there, John Fetterman, um, he moderated a bit on some issues, but he was a standard, you know, his message was, I'm going to vote the Democratic line. You know, I'm here for, for reproductive freedom, unions, stuff like that, right? Pro-gay rights, pro-marijuana legalization. He wasn't like a Joe Manchin or anything, right? Um, but at the same... I mean, <laughs> I mean, with John Fetterman, he's not just the guy with you in the bar, he's the guy with you in the bar fight, right? Like, he definitely has an image and a presentation that I think registered as authentic to a lot of people. Um, And his opponent, Dr. Oz, who's kind of like this TV celebrity, um... I might be wrong. I don't think Oz was like a, a, a lunatic election denier or anything. If anything, I think he tried to run as a moderate. Um, he was just kind of a weird dude. Like, when, when you saw the debate or whatever, like, everyone said, oh, like, Oz so won the debate because he got the better points in and he was a bit quicker on his feet and whatever. Yeah, but would you hang out with him? I think, I think that is what people are asking a lot of the time. Um, and I think the answer's just got to be no. And I think the Fetterman campaign did a really good job of making him a carpetbagger, like someone coming from out of state who doesn't understand the concerns of people from that state. And having worked on elections myself and knocked tens of thousands of doors at this point, I'll tell you, that charge of carpetbagging, if you can make it stick, works. Voters hate carpetbaggers. They absolutely hate them. Um, the thing is, to make it stick, you've got to bang on about it non-stop, right? Which Fetterman did. Um, I also just think there's, like, let's just call it political instincts of, like, hearing how you sound to the middle-of-the-road person. And like I said, I'm perfectly happy to acknowledge the left gets this one wrong sometimes, right? Um, and that we sometimes don't hear how we sound. And I think that's something we've been beaten over the head with a lot. I think in this specific election, this was very much a you don't hear how you sound to, to, to the centre of the electorate. You don't, I'll put it this way, you don't hear how you sound to people who don't have the partisan conditioning to be on your team, right? You're not hearing how you're coming across. And that was definitely, definitely true for Oz. Um, Because his big thing, his big line of attack on John Fetterman was that he ignored doctors' advice and as a result ended up 
having a stroke, um, which then impaired his speech processing in some ways. Um, I think no one on paper will say, yeah, I want someone who's just had a stroke as my senator. It doesn't sound brilliant, right? And it got a lot of very, generated a lot of very sort of negative press coverage for Fetterman. And I think all of that negative press coverage helped him. I think, I think the net result is that put votes in Fetterman's camp. And I think on the one hand, people just sort of reacted badly to the idea of mocking someone for a medical condition that they found relatable. I think also, let me tell you a story. There's a dude who eats too many burgers. He goes to his doctor. The doctor says, you're eating too many burgers. You keep eating burgers. Gonna have a stroke. Dude keeps eating burgers. He has a stroke. And the doctor says, well, I did tell you to stop eating the burgers. Whose side is the average American on in that story? And if you think, as Oz clearly did, and many people in the media clearly said, did, that the average American is on the doctor's side, you, you do not understand American culture and where Americans are at in their head. Like I said, this is just political instincts. You have to have, like, a theory of mind which some of these absolute freaks just didn't, right? The average American is firmly in Burger Guy's corner on that one, right? Um, and I need to think of an, a name for this. I think there's a type of political attack that you can make. This is a slight digression, but hear me out. That looks like it's doing a lot of damage, but actually is just putting votes in your opponent's camp. Another example of this from a completely different scenario other side of the aisle was the last, actually the, the one before last, Tory leadership election in the UK. Rishi Sunak was hitting Liz Truss over the head with the idea that every leading economist of every stripe thought her economic plan was insane, right? That every expert thinks this is, this is crazy. Seems to be doing a lot of damage, getting a lot of traction in the press. I'm pretty sure that was putting votes in Liz Truss's camp. Even though, like, nobody would say it's a good thing that all the experts disagree with you. Nobody would say it's a good thing to have all this negative media coverage. But I think in terms of the electorate, which is the, what, 180,000 most conservative people in the UK... They're kind of sick and tired of being told that what they want to do with the economy is crazy and impractical. And when they see someone else who's being told that, they think, yeah, that's my person, right? And so kind of almost what I have in mind here is like if you imagine you're playing a video game and you unlock this new ability for your character and it's called like flaming lightning destruction or something, you think, oh, wow, that looks like a really cool attack. And you do the attack on an enemy and there's all the lightning and explosions and, like, it sends them flying. And you think, oh, wow, that's so cool. But the actual effect it has is to increase your opponent's health. Sort of like that, right? And I think that was true of the, like, Liz Truss's economic plan is insane line of attack, at least until she 
got into implementing it and the results became clear. But when it was being discussed in the abstract, I think it added votes to her corner. And I think the mocking someone for ignoring doctor's advice and having a stroke as a result seemed to be doing a lot of damage. I think actually added votes to Fetterman. And so this is what I mean about political instincts, in that if you're just looking at the lightning and the explosions, but not checking the stats, you could think, oh, well, that did a load of damage, I'll do it again, and I'll keep hitting the, 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 the video game enemy with that attack over and over and over and over again, just continually helping them. And I think that's basically what Oz did. And I think this sort of speaks to the likability and relatability thing, right? is are you sort of asking that question of your candidate and of yourselves, of like, how is this coming across to people who aren't primed to agree with us? And I think really badly in that case. And so that, that I, I went into that one in a bit of detail, because I think that one's a one where you were able to separate out the election denier side from the just not being likable or relatable side. Um, and almost across the board to the chance to, to the extent I was able to get a chance to watch them interviewed or whatever um the people who were running on the most extremist platforms were not likable or relatable people and also I think people quite profoundly lacking in self-awareness a lot of the time whose only real thought is how they're coming across to people who are within their group, if they think it at all, about how they come across. So that's that. I think, what about the dog that didn't bark? Final one for factors that influence the small section of the American electorate that still influence a bowl. Um, inflation, wasn't this supposed to be an election entirely about inflation? That's certainly what the press wanted it to be about. Um, that's certainly the number one issue, according to exit polls, that voters thought it was about. If the main issue in this election was inflation, surely we'd have expected Democrats to do a lot worse than they did. Why did that? Why did that kind of fizzle out? Well, I think a few reasons. I think that, that inflation was quite high, did not help Democrats. You know, that the people were paying more at the pump. Um, you know, I, you know they, they probably would have done a little better, but for that, I think if I synthesize election results over, you know, the past few cycles and maybe in an international context as well, um, I think one pattern, it's not one for one, but that I could sort of make a case for, is that the, if there's a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, which in, a lot of policymaking assumes that there is, the press tends to pu punish high inflation more severely. The electorate tends to punish unemployment more severely. And I think for fairly obvious class reasons, right? If you're sort of an ordinary working class person, 
certainly you don't like prices rising, right? But the thing that's going to motivate you to vote, and particularly to vote against a party you identify with, is if you're out of the job, or if you know people who are out of the job and are, you know, in your friends, family, or whatever, who are struggling to get back in the labour market. Um, that's really what's going to, like, impact your political decision-making. Um, for people who are in the press, who tend to overwhelmingly be from privileged backgrounds, who tend to move in circles of other people who are quite privileged, you're not worried about being unemployed. And when unemployment is high, you probably don't know people who are really struggling and destitute. But inflation means that that money in your bank account is getting worth less and less, and you don't like that, right? So I think for fairly simple class reasons, you know, the very top of society cares more about inflation. Ordinary people care more about unemployment. And so I think to the extent that the Democrats went hard with fiscal stimulus and um, getting people back into work and so on, and didn't seem to care as much about, you know, would putting all that extra money in the economy be inflationary, um, was probably the correct decision electorally. I think also in terms of, like, as a welfare question, it was the correct decision. Um, but while nobody will say inflation is good, I think the economic thing that, that drives people and moves people is, is unemployment. Um, and so I think you had a case where the press was going inflation, 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 inflation. And everyone was sort of going, yeah, no, no, it's bad. And it, it looked like this was going to be the thing that overwhelmed Democrats. At the end of the day, it wasn't as big a problem as it would have been if unemployment was still high. And while no one would say it was good, it ultimately was trumped by abortion, I think, at the margin, at the key seats, at the decision points. Not for every individual voter, but at the fulcrums, right? I also think, while this was a net advantage to Republicans, they ultimately failed to capitalise on it as much as they could have done, I think. Um, I'll let me just give you the conventional analysis of this, and then let me maybe try and build some points of my own on top of it. The conventional analysis was inflation is a, rep a problem. Republicans did not propose a solution. There was no, like, here's what we're going to do to get prices down. Here's what we're going to do to, you know, help you with your cost of living. You know, even the Tory messaging in the UK has been somewhat connected to, to reality in that sense. Republicans just had inflation bad, and the electorate, by and large, recognised that they didn't have a solution. And so it's kind of like, inflation bad, maybe even I blame Democrats for that. I'm not understanding how the problem gets better if we give you Congress, so I'm going to vote on these other issues, right? I think that's true enough. As it goes, um, I think, you know, when you saw 
the exit polling, I think what you'd probably see if you broke it down is everyone who said inflation was my number one issue, and vast majority of those are Republican voters and people who are never going to vote anything other than Republican. And this kind of goes to what I want to, to, to sort of build on, is, yes, they didn't propose a solution. I also, and this goes to the likability and relatability and, like, um, self-awareness question, is they also just talked about it in a really weird way. Like, oftentimes when I was listening to Republican stump speeches, they just throw out inflation as a word, but never connect it to anything. Um, And in many ways, I found the way the Republican Party and Republican partisans were talking about inflation in this cycle much more closely resembled how the right usually talks about social issues than how it talks about economic ones. Because, you know, it's the economy, stupid. I was watching the coverage of um, the midterms and sort of mainstream media, and until the results came in, they all just kept... The media loves this bloody line um, from Bill Clinton originally. It's the economy, stupid. Um, they just kept saying that, yep, it, you know, Republicans are going to win because the economy, the economy, it affects people's everyday lives, da, 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 right? But okay, Eco- economic messaging can be really powerful because it connects to people's everyday lives, right? But then your messaging has to connect with everyday lives. It's like, you know, your supermarket shop is more expensive now, here's how I'm going to make it less expensive, you've got to tell that story. And Republicans were not only not telling that story, they were using the term inflation much more like they use cultural sibboleths, right? So think of something a bit like critical race theory. Now, a lot of people have had a good laugh about the fact that if you, a politician says the main issue I'm running on is to stop critical race theory being thought, taught in schools, the interviewer. Okay, what is critical race theory? Well, I don't know. Okay, ha-ha, Republicans are stupid. What's actually happening here? This person, or the voters they're speaking to, has a strong sense that society is going the wrong way, that there are perverse things happening in the world that are scary and are kind of just bewildering, right? And this is the label that we're putting to that. We don't literally... You know, we're not. It doesn't. It doesn't make sense to ask what do you mean by critical race theory because that's not what's being communicated here, right? It's a sense of grievance, and entitlement, and anger and bemusement that's being communicated. That's that's the label that we're putting to it. Abortion can have a similar, do some similar work in the. Although that does have a substantive component as well, and people are invested in the substantive component, it can also just sort of be a stand-in for, like, why I would never vote Democrat, is I couldn't support someone who's pro-abortion. Sometimes people mean that, they really are very pro-life. Sometimes what they're really meaning is that word is sort of a stand-in for Democrats are not my people, they are not my team. They are people who I think are weird and perverse, and I'm using abortion as a signifier for that. Critical race theory 
you don't even have the substantive component anymore. These people are weird and alien to me, and they're around my children, and I really don't like that. That's what's actually being communicated there, right? Was it just me, or was inflation being used a bit like that? You know, I saw a few threads online of people commenting, and I was particularly interested in people who had voted in referendums in order to make abortion still legal. There was one in Kansas, but who also had voted Republican down the ticket. And people would ask, but okay, if you want abortion to be legal, why are you voting Republican down ticket? Inflation. It's all just inflation, isn't it? And it sort of occurred to me, if you asked that person what is inflation, I don't think they'd have an answer. It's a general sense of these wrong, unnatural, like, gross people who I find disgusting and scary, and they're now in charge. The wrong sorts of people are in charge, and that, it's a violation of the natural ordering of things, right? Inflation. <laughs> they, they, they were using the term as they sort of use these stand-ins they have for their general social conservatism, right? The thing is, those stand-ins are a way of deflecting questions from outside the in-group. You know, why are you voting Republican when Donald Trump is so weird? This, one of the very standard responses, I can't, just can't back a pro-abortion party. It's a deflection. It doesn't persuade the other person. You know, or conversely, if you're pro-abortion, why are you voting Republican? Inflation. It's a way of deflecting a question. And it's a way of communicating within the group. Instead of trying to sort of explain your entire, like, what you find wrong with society today, which you may or may not even be able to do, you can sort of use a word that carries that meaning within the in-group. You can sort of say it's all of this CRT in schools, right? And people within the in-group will know what you mean. But that is not and has never been great election messaging. It serves a purpose if you understand groups, uh, your political ideologies as having a community element, as, as having an identity element, um, you know, it, it serves a purpose in gelling the community together and expressing a sense of identity. It's not great election messaging. And I think what was happening is people were going, inflation, inflation, in a very angry tone of voice, clearly talking about things that weren't economic, right? In a way that the people who are non-aligned, who aren't part of that community, who don't share necessarily or perhaps only partially share that sense of identity, it just it didn't make sense to them. It was kind of meaningless, right? Not only were they not proposing a solution. They weren't even really describing the problem. Um, and again, I think this speaks to this thing about like how insular 
the Republican discourse has become and how unself-aware it's become. Like, I think this, this all sort of tracks to each other. And it does seem like that insularity and lack of self-awareness has had an electoral price. So again, good news and bad news, right? The good news is it had an electoral price. The, the worst outcomes seem to have been avoided. The bad news is there are still tens and tens of millions of Americans who are responding to this and are deeply, deeply conditioned to be in this and to regard people who might try and pull them out of that identity and community and worldview as the enemy, right? And if that identity group ideology had got another 2% of people to the polls, we could be in quite a different country. So good news and bad news, you know? Um, okay, so, so that's roughly, you know, my quick and speedy, and again, for a lot of that, you could do it in a whole episode analysis of sort of what I said was like my first thing with the American electorate. Very strongly partisan, but with, you know, some ability of voters to move in the middle, which is made meaningful by the fact that we're in a very evenly divided electorate. Um, And I sort of went through, okay, it's partisan, we know this, you know, for for the people whose preferences, who were persuadable and who did shift, what are the factors that went into that? And, you know, I went through that. I think there is a swingy thing. There is, the, there is a thermostatic thing. Um, that worked against Democrats. I think the Dobbs decision worked very strongly for Democrats. I think weird, unlikable candidates, as much as anything else, on the Republican side, worked for Democrats. And I think Republicans were to some degree advantaged, but ultimately failed to capitalise on a poor um, economic indicator in the form of inflation. And the result of that is a very, very close, evenly divided election in a circumstance in which you would expect the out party to be significantly advantaged. I think if you add it all together, you about end up where we are. Um, And I'll add one more tiny quick element to that, which I didn't see coming, but it's perhaps a pleasant surprise. In the Republican, in the Democrats, sorry, seem to have done fairly well in terms of electoral structures, which is a bit of a first for us, in that we are narrowly losing the House, but it's, it's actually quite easy to imagine a scenario in which Democrats retained the House but lost the popular vote for the House. Like, we seemed to do specifically well in the close elections, in the sort of swing states. Why? So I have a thesis that not only is there a Dobbs effect, but there's a Dobbs, the Dobbs effect is the strongest in swing states. Why? Because those are the states in which partisan control of that state will determine abortion policy. So it's sort of kind of rational that, and you see this in exit polling, the states where abortion was most of an issue were the sort of Pennsylvanias, not the New Yorks, right? Because in New York, it's not going to change. You're not going to have a Republican trifecta government in New York, right? 
Um, Pennsylvania, you could have, and that would matter. You could have a trifecta either way, right? Um, and so, although the Dobbs decision hasn't harmed Republicans by as much as I might have hoped it would, it has harmed them. And it seems to have specifically harmed them in swing states, which it's like, you know, if you've got an issue that, like, is hurting your party, you don't want it to be especially salient in states where the elections are likely to be close, right? Um, I think election deniers, too, I've said I don't think it's as big an effect, but, like, the states where it would matter are the swing states where you might have the state voting one way, but partisan control of the state legislature in, a, in the other party's hands, right? Um, so that's the a final final piece there, um, and that might go some way towards um, erasing this sort of outcome popular vote disparity. I think we'd need to give it a few more election cycles to see that we've been seeing. I think, you know, even with the various failures of democratic redistricting and complexities surrounding that, which I shan't get into, um, you might see Democrats better maximize their vote in house elections maybe even in the Electoral College. Senate was still completely fucked, as far as that chamber goes. Um, but, you know, you take wins where you get them. Um, and, of course, the state level matters, too. So, anyway. Partisan electorate in which the traditional, Repub the, the traditional out-party advantage of thermostatic public opinion was overwhelmed by the Dobbs decision and very bad candidates, and the advantage the Republicans had was of inflation was, to a large degree, squandered, resulting in a very, very close election, which constitutes a Democratic overperformance. I don't think anything I've said there is too crazy, right? I like, maybe my, I think my whys are a bit different. Like, why those things mattered, I've maybe tried to, like, um, my opinions are maybe a bit different from the conventional narrative, but that is basically what happened. I think maybe the question to think about going forward is why is the electorate so closely divided, though? Because, like I say, if that wasn't the case, then all of the analysis I've just done might be interesting or whatever, but it wouldn't matter because it's not moving that many votes, right? There's a pundit opinion, which is I think, just reflects all of your traditional pundit biases, right? That the both parties are equally extremist, the press has no culpability in this whatsoever, and that if all politicians would just listen to us, you know, things would get much better. So, the, here's the take. It goes something like this. Because elections are so closely divided, neither party has a significant incentive to open to um, reform itself, which means that they constantly just go back to their own base and reinforce their own biases, and nothing really changes, so the coalitions don't change. So, you know, in other words, if you lose an election by two points, you don't think, oh, we need to reinvent the whole party, you think, oh, we just need to drive base turnout a bit more, so let's just make sure we really hit our core messaging again. Because of that, neither party really changes platform. And as a result, the coalitions don't change, so it stays closely divided. Okay, that's a story I've heard a lot of times. 
everything about that story is wrong. Um, the party platforms have changed quite a lot over the last few decades. We've had a few decades now of closely divided politics, and it keeps getting closer. But the Democratic Party is miles away on social issues, for instance, from where it, it was under the early Obama years, much less the Clinton years. Um, economic platforms have changed. While the Republican core commitments of conservative justices and tax cuts for the rich have remained more or less the same, certainly the messaging and rhetoric and presentation around them has changed. The way it's narrated its narrative in the culture war has changed a lot. And um, the, um, the, the, the demographic coalitions that, that go into to the parties have changed a lot. In 2000, when Bush was first elected, that was the first time a Republican won the Catholic vote at a presidential level. It's unthinkable now that they wouldn't. Democrats were still reasonably competitive in a lot of southern states through the Clinton years. Even states we think of as solidly red like West Virginia, only went that way in the Obama years. And you see it in this election too, right? Florida, for instance, seems to have taken a turn sharply to the right. That seems to have moved from a swingy or narrowly Republican state to a reasonably solid Republican state. At the same time, it looks like Colorado and New Hampshire have moved from swingy-ish states to solidly Democratic states. But, but, okay then, but why does it always cancel out? What would have happened, like, what happens if Florida just moves right, but Colorado stays swingy? Well, then, you know, then we would start to enter this world I'm talking about, where it's strongly partisan, but one side's just bigger than the other, and all the, the, the sort of non-aligned voters in the middle don't really matter anymore. But it doesn't, it always just sort of, seems to just, you know, one party gains here, the other gains there, and we, we're continually at this sort of thing where everything is coming down to, like, a few states with, like, 51, 49 margins, right? Why? Well, like I said, I think this media narrative is... The, 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 like, pundit brain analysis that neither party has an incentive to reform is wrong. The parties have changed. The voting coalitions have changed. I think pundits like that because it speaks to their biases. It's the parties that are wrong. What might actually be going wrong is the media's insistence on both sides in everything. Um, yes, Republicans have an extremism problem, but so do Democrats. Don't you know AOC was very rude on Twitter? You know, Republicans have a democracy problem, but if Democrats are telling people that they, that they can only vote to protect the Republic, well, they have a democracy problem too, do they not? You know, I think this instinctive desire on the press to be equally critical of both sides kind of helps lock us into this sort of artificially, evenly divided country. Um, I also just think it might just be dumb luck. So I'll give you an analogy. For the longest time, 
the Supreme Court was 5-4 Republican Court, but with at least one Republican who was sort of swingy-ish or, like, moderate-ish. Anthony Kennedy, for the longest time, was that person, right? Um, and we all just sort of accepted that as a status quo, to the point where 5-4 almost became a byword for a close partisan decision, right? Um, and it meant that a lot of issues, i.e. abortion, were kind of reasonably locked in because it was just this narrow divide, right? And it could seem quite natural that that would be the composition of a Supreme Court, sort of center-right-ish, right? But in a sense, it's just sort of dumb luck that the court was that way. It was that way because presidencies have tended to alternate eight years for one party, eight years for the other, at least over recent history. It's tended to alternate that way because of the sort of dumb luck of who dies or resigns during a particular term. But then suddenly the luck, you know, it's a bit like you keep flipping a coin and it goes heads, tails, heads, tails. But it could be like heads, heads, heads. It doesn't have to alternate every time. Um, and then that just suddenly breaks down. Trump gets three appointments, which is pretty high for one presidential term, um, and consequential appointments that shift the power of balance of the court, and then we're in a completely different world. And I wonder if something like that could happen with partisan alignment in America, because as much as it's baked in, as much as it's strong, as much as I've been saying, it's a huge part of people's identity. It shifts and changes all the time. States drift in and out of being competitive to non-competitive. You know, the, the party coalitions change. The, the, the issue platforms, you know, as much as we say both parties are equally resistant to change, they're not. Like, the Democrats have changed a lot, and they've changed in line with changing public opinion. Um, maybe it actually just won't be the case. Maybe what we'll see is the next few big changes, be it states becoming competitive or non-competitive, or particular changes in where a particular group or like demographic, how they vote, maybe they'll be unidirectional. Maybe they'll all benefit one party. Maybe, you know, like I say, we're kind of like treading water at this inflection point, I think, in American political history where, like, do we sort of become a Russia, like a kleptocratic, authoritarian, very corrupt state that scapegoats and represses minorities, but does maintain a core of, like, nationalism that, that can keep the government afloat to become something like that? Or... Do we actually become the diverse, multiracial, continental republic that Democrats have been acting as if we are for a while? You know, you can just see a, a few big blocks slide into place one way, and nothing slides back the other way. Both of those could be on the table. Like, my final analysis there is it might just sort of be a bit of a fluke that the changes have all just sort of happened to cancel each other out in a way that it was kind of just a bit of a fluke that um, the sort of 
cycle of presidencies and the fluke of appointments, happened to maintain a very closely divided court. But the court has not been closely divided in that partisan sense for most of American history, and in many ways having a partisan supermajority on it is a sort of return to historic norms. Maybe we'll look back at this period of, you know, 20, 30 years or so of very close American elections as a bit of an aberration, just like a bit of a stretch of dumb luck. And I don't think there's really any way of predicting in advance which way those blocks are going to start falling, and which way the blocks fall is something that is within our agency and our power. Our decisions matter for that. And that that is sort of where I land generally on this. We've avoided the worst outcomes, but also foreclosed the best. We do seem to have provided a disincentive to Republicans to continue with election denial, but not necessarily a strong enough one. I think time will tell if this was enough of a disincentive. Um... And all of that is sort of a matter of the choices people are going to make about, you know, this Republican primary for president that's seemingly already started. I won't go into that today. Um, everything, f- sound and fire and fury signifying nothing, right? Like, for all that, that's co- gone into this election, we landed in a very similar place. Not that much changed in terms of partisan control. The House is significant, and we'll see how all that plays out. Um, And we kind of ended up back at the same place, which is, I think, at a crossroads. At an inflection point at which liberal democracy was at stake, and is still at stake. That's where I land. Like, I think democracy was on the ballot in this election. It was literally on the ballot. Some people were telling you I planned to overturn elections. Like, it was literally on the ballot. Um, and we... Neither side, I think, is going to be able to really leverage this election to fully implement what they want to implement. But that closeness, that paralysis, that evenly dividedness, I think we would be wrong to assume is a permanent feature, that we're just going to continue to trundle forward at this sort of crossroads, at this inflection point, with neither side ever gaining a a decisive advantage. I think it could break either way, and when it happens, it could happen quite suddenly, and I don't think we're going to be able to predict it in advance. And I'll close with this. Um, I, I might have been the first person to come up with this, so if I did, I came up with it ages ago, and I've recently heard pundits on the news saying it. Um, I assume someone else thought of it, or, and I assume the pundits haven't been listening to my show, they thought of it independently, but I've used this analogy of World War I trench warfare as a sort of metaphor for American politics, in that you have insane amounts of time and effort and energy to move the front lines by a few yards in either direction, and the entire thing feels like such a pointless waste. But at the same time, if one side just stood down unilaterally, the other would win. It's, it's kept at this closeness because the two sides are just cancelling each other out effectively. 
And that's what everyone remembers about World War One. but I would build on it, because I've heard the pundits make that. But there was always another side of that metaphor for me, which wasn't just the paralysis and the stalemate. It's that the stalemate goes on for so long that people assume it's inevitable. But when it starts to break down, things can suddenly move very fast, in that World War I was not trench warfare the whole time. Once one side suddenly gets a breakthrough, things can start to spiral. That is where I think we're at. Okay, thanks for listening.